So hello and welcome to the latest episode of the new PNL Principles and Leadership in Business, the podcast series. I'm Paul, host of the new PNL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or another platform, and you like what you hear, please do take a moment to review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to ensure you never miss another episode of the new PNL, please go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe. We'd love to have you as part of our community. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Marcus Kramer, Managing Partner at Brand Affairs and co-author of The Guiding Purpose Strategy, a Navigational Code for Growth. Marcus has built a career working with some of the most well-known and respected global brands, including Aston Martin, Harley-Davidson and Ferrari, as well as many of the world's leading luxury goods companies, financial services firms, technology companies, NGOs and startups helping them to deliver brand and commercial value through rediscovering and aligning their purpose. So Marcus, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. Nice Pleasure. to be with you. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've worked with some of the world's biggest and most respected brands. So I think it would be great to start the, the conversation with you giving us a bit of an overview in terms of what you do and who you do it for. All right. So what I do today is work with brands primarily and their teams, of course, primarily to provide orientation. Very often, uh, big brands are on a journey to evolve, and it's not quite clear where to. So orientation is key, and I do that primarily through helping them to articulate their purpose, their value system, and ultimately positioning as well. And so... That goes all the way down to um, building architecture with the team, sometimes with agencies, sometimes as part of marketing teams, and then helping with implementation very often as well. The smaller the brand gets or gets, the more nitty gritty it is in terms of implementation. And I do enjoy both really a lot, the conceptual work and the hands-on implementation as well. But that's the space I move in primarily. So now for whom do I do this? This virus, this really goes from NGOs and startups to uh, bigger companies. Um, Harley Davidson is one I still enjoy working with a lot. Uh, Aston Martin a little bit less these days, Ferrari is probably a, a little while back now, DHL, but then we have some uh, smaller companies, SMEs, 100, 200 people uh, here, primarily in Europe, uh, where I focus on. Um, much of your work and your, your keynote presentations are focused on brands, helping them to define their you know, define purpose, better integrate purpose into their business. So I thought it'd be good to start the conversation by getting your definition of what purpose actually means in a business context. In a business context specifically. So purpose to me is the radiating energy that sort of springs from within and around the spiritual core. We normally have a set of core values. Maybe, we, maybe we'll get to that. But purpose to me is um, short. It's five words or less. It's more of an energy than is a mission statement, vision statement, or half a page. So it's really, mm -hmm. uh, really, really um, short and punchy. It can be felt primarily. 
Um, it's hard to articulate for most business leaders. It's much easier to talk about vision, strategy, objectives, challenges, and all the speak we have in business, but it's hard to articulate values and especially why I'm here and what they do and why I do what I do. It's really difficult for individuals mm-hmm. and it's even more difficult for, uh, for, for companies. So purpose to me is a fundamental differentiator as well. Uh, Today, I do believe strongly that there is no longer a world where we have USPs and we can just clearly differentiate our products or services. However, culture is something that's really hard to replicate and purpose Mm -hmm. is at the very heart of building strong cultures. And therefore, if you ask, well, you know, in purpose in a business context, well, it's not just big, you know, fluffy stuff. It actually helps companies to differentiate and make sure it cannot just be copied of what they do today. And that's their culture. And so in a, in a, in a way, it is not just about loyalty and attractiveness and, and efficiencies because people feel more connected to what they do, but it's also to make sure that you protect what you've built and it's not as easily replicatable in the future. So this, I find increasingly for business leaders carries value because differentiation is increasingly hard and culture is one way to differentiate. And as the famous, famous management guru, Peter Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yes, and I yes. think it's it's more true than ever before. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier in that answer there about purpose is, is often a feeling as well. It's more than just words on paper, but feeling something is very subjective to the individual um, mm-hmm. and everyone has a different perception and interpretation mm-hmm. and experience they bring to that feeling. Um, if you have a global company of 10, 20, 30,000 people mm-hmm. and culture relies on coherence and consistency and collaboration how do you align feeling when feeling is so subjective and get everyone working towards common purpose (laughs) it's a very good question i think when firstly i would slightly disagree i think they're actually fundamental universal drivers that are true for us as human beings no Mm -hmm. matter who we are and where we are on planet earth let's take love is one of those for example happiness is probably one of those there are universal drivers that connect and i think if you manage to have something that is greater than uh, what your company does and how your company does it that taps into one of these universal feelings so to speak it's a good starting point that's why yes. in my power formula of purpose i say it needs to be closer than you think you know so it needs to be universal but really true so therefore we have to detach ourselves from planet earth for a little bit and just look at what unites us so if that's not in your purpose then it will be inherently difficult to create cohesion in larger organizations Um, so you know starting point number one is to have clarity on a purpose that really is uh, able to align to be shared and to be aligned with your entire population whether that's you know 50 people that's relatively easy up to 150 still kind of okay beyond that starts to get trickier and as you have diversity of functions geographies and cultures the more or the harder it gets and therefore you know short short clearly contextualized purpose statements are much more powerful to tap into the greater societal good so to speak in one way shape or form and at that level we can create um, cohesion and alignment i do believe advocates of sort of a more purposeful approach like yourself to business you know many contend that it can help reposition brands as more trustworthy more authentic and and empathetic i guess as well Mm -hmm. however how do brands avoid the cynicism from consumers who regularly hear from brands about their newfound purpose or whatever it happens to be you know how how do you avoid consumers coming to see it 
as just another piece of PR. You know, you've got a, mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk from brands is less walk, if you like. Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, I think that's really, really hard. Uh, it's, it's not that there's no easy answer to this. And if anything, it's probably going to get um, more difficult for consumers to distinguish whether a company is genuinely purpose-driven or not. Because many claim it, even more will claim it, and few will actually walk the talk, as you say. Yeah. So how how do you how do you you know how do you kind of cut through the the noise? I think one is demonstration of integrity and whether a brand has the ability to consistently, frequently deliver on their promise. It's hard to see whether you know whether whether they actually do this or not. Even if they tell you the most beautiful story, if they don't walk the talk, then uh, then you probably won't won't uh, believe it. But as a consumer, and how do you distinguish the PR shine from real? Uh, action. I, I have one example that I can perhaps cite. I'm also co-author of a study called the Responsible Investment Brand Index. It's called mm -hmm. Rebe. And what we measure is the commitment rating of asset managers towards sustainable investment, because these guys, if anyone, they are at the level of money and money can make a big difference to make the world a better place. So yeah. how committed are they to true responsible investment? There is a, you know, there's many factors we evaluate. I think it overall it's about 300 parameters. And that's on the vertical. And then on the horizontal, we look at their commitment in terms of brand and how they use their brand to convey their convictions of the good deeds and the good actions. And it's interesting to see that when we evaluate nearly 300 asset managers in, uh, in Europe alone, that the large majority is in a category that we call either traditionalist or well, traditionalists or laggards. So mm. whilst they commit, they do a bad job at uh, communicating this, but there are a few that actually communicate it really well, but they don't truly commit. Yeah. And uh, I think that's where we start. I mean, one, one, one of my contributions is to say, well, at least in one industry where there's a lot of leverage in terms of money of helping make the world a better place, let's look at these universes very, very closely and transparently expose, so to speak, in a, in a positive way, because I'd love for everybody to move towards a more purposeful way of doing business and a more yes. sustainable world. So the starting point is uh, shedding a bit of light on this, making it transparent for you know, business partners and consumers to see. But it's hard. It's really hard. And it's, uh, that's just one area and one industry where, uh, where, where we shed a bit of light on what really is being told versus what really is being done. Yeah, yeah. Most businesses start with an idea and a purpose, uh, and as they grow bigger and they're bought and sold or they evolve and they become this huge organic uh, operational machine, they drift sometimes further and further away from the mm -hmm. from the ambition or the purpose or the vision of the founder um, to the point where sometimes the business is not recognisable from what it used to be or when it started. I wonder whether you can retrofit purpose into an organization, something that has evolved organically over time and perhaps lost its way. And I guess you're working with a lot of those businesses in and out today. Can you retrofit purpose authentically into an organization? 
<laughs> it's a very difficult one, actually. It's both a hard question and it's a difficult one to uh, to achieve. I do think it's possible, but it's a very different uh, starting point uh, if you work with a startup or an organization that says, hey, we have generally this is linked to transformation, either merger and acquisition, great opportunity mm-hmm. to rethink who you are and where you go. Sometimes in reorganizations, great opportunity to rethink who you are and where you want to go. And if you can use this as a transformational lever, I call it, to create cohesion, alignment, vision, energy, direction, and so forth. But let's assume you are in a business that's been going for a while and you kind of lost your way, perhaps. Um, Generally, that can be felt. Generally, there is an ambition. It comes from somewhere to ask, hey, can we use purpose as an activator? Mm -hmm. And generally, it doesn't come from the mark comes people. And if it does, I'm suspicious, even though I'm a marketeer, (laughs) I'm a marketeer myself, right? I am suspicious because likely it's seen as a bit of a comms exercise. Uh, the best retrofits or generally fits, but also retrofits is if it's the board that says, hey, we need to rethink uh, who we are and where we go. And purpose might be a good lever to start. Uh, that's hard. And I think if a board member or sometimes a chief executive, but less, less likely, it's much more operational, uh, board member comes and says that might be a good way to look at it. That's a generally I love it because it's as much to do with a, a rationale for the business as a way to embed perhaps an adjusted philosophy to provide direction. Mm-hmm. And it's also carried from the top. And unless this is from the get-go carried from the top, a retrofit is impossible. If this is a bit of a, a Marcom's exercise that tries to kind of look at the great purpose and likely they've developed a, a great strap line, but not a purpose and who we are and where we go. It's it's a, you're not going to create or overcome the challenge or the obstacle of cynicism. Well, yeah. yet another fad, yet another you know sort of thing. It needs to keep be carried from the top, and if it's retrofit, uh, then then especially. But yes, it can absolutely. It can Airbnb, I think, is a great example that yeah. managed to retrofit the purpose very well in their organization. I'm interested in understanding, digging a little bit deeper into that, and understanding who the the most critical advocate for purpose is in a business you you cited the board there that you know perhaps it needs to be driven by the board um many board members and, and i don't want to make a sweeping statement but they may have 10 or 20 directorships they come in and out for quarterly meetings they they may look at the numbers they may look at the the business whether they have an in-depth understanding of the the nuances in the day-to-day culture of a business mm-hmm. I, I would question i guess um mm-hmm. So they may drive it, but there may not be enough impetus within a board to to genuinely change purpose mm-hmm. within within a business. So who is the most important advocate and driver for for purpose in a business? Mm-hmm. In my experience, it's a well. There's a number of them, but they're really two that are key. Uh, one is I do think the board member that recognizes this and sees this as a hey, talent is key. How do we get the best talent? How do we retain talent? it links to our competitive differentiation Mm -hmm. and can we also increase efficiency and productivity of the people we have what provides this it's not just incentive and money anymore and the recognition of people look for more than that how do we provide the meaning and i do agree with you there are a few in spares that truly get this and i hope we will see more of those but if those are the advocates that's a really great starting point 
The other one is, interestingly enough, HR, in my opinion, and where HR is not seen as a service function. Uh, in Probably 90% of companies, they are seen as more of a service function, payroll and what have you. Yes. But where you start to see chief resource officers or CRH, CROs, I think they're called, or CRH, whatever they're called, but really where a HR director reports to the executive committee or even to the board as well. That's where we see the purpose being carried as a sort of a strong flag. Mm-hmm. CEOs sometimes, uh, but less so, they're much more into, well, we need to sell stuff. And I yeah. stereotype here, and rightly so, because they've got to make a commercial model work. The CMOs, um, they love it, but at the end of the day, they are there to help stimulate, to strengthen mm-hmm. their brand and stimulate demand. So more can be sold, more services, more products can generate more revenue. So the idea of purpose is actually as, as, as contradictory as it sounds, sometimes a bit removed from their ability to implement. So yeah, long story short, I think it is within the board if it's recognized. And then uh, very often I work closely with HR people and the chief executive. And then at some point when we communicate and roll out, of course, with with marketing as well, of course. You touched on earlier in one of your answers as we were talking about the importance of brands to authentically deliver and demonstrate purpose to their consumers and their customers. Um, That's half the battle. The other half of the battle, I guess, is internal, and that's ensuring that board members and, and others at the senior exec level shareholders, investors, understand and keep the faith and keep their nerve between the development of purpose and the implementation of purpose and the commercial return that that purpose may deliver over time for a, mm-hmm. a better business, a business for good and so on. How do you work with businesses to ensure that those key internal stakeholders do hold their faith and hold their nerve and believe that over the medium term, purpose is better for the business, even if there isn't a short-term commercial return? Mm-hmm. Again, a very good question. And I think uh, I, the, the, the way I fundamentally believe this works is that purpose is embedded from the inside out, but the starting point is actually outside in. So when engaging with stakeholders on purpose, I don't engage on why do you do what you do. It's way too removed from, from them. Mm-hmm. It is really um, articulating visions, questioning visions, challenging objectives, looking at you know, insights, perceptions, and so forth, working on positioning, all the, all the stuff that businesses are used to. Yes. From there, we go in, into values and into purpose. And once we agree on it, and define this radiating core, so to speak, and perhaps adjust the values and hopefully find a differentiating one. We'll link it back to vision, back to strategy, um, and also ultimately back to business. And when you talk about purpose and whether it's effective and how can we demonstrate it, I think businesses still do measure it on the commercial success of whatever yeah. industry or business they are in. And I try to keep that language up. We actually don't touch on purpose as much. I think. Measuring it is important through employee engagement, employee surveys, measuring values. There's great organizations that help. There's great tools. I've developed them as a metric. I call it the purpose measurement, uh, so to speak, as well. It's similar to an NPS score, but give them tools to measure how cohesive and how aligned the organization is. And that's the only way that I see to link that back to the business to say whether it works or not, because purpose alone, uh, it won't win the battle, right? Uh, It will maybe keep you in business. I have one example in the US where 
a CEO recently told me, hey, if we hadn't done this uh, through what we've just gone through and where we are at, it's not about doing better for us. It's about staying in business, keeping the people and keeping the faith and keeping the belief. And that's just as important as it is perhaps in good times to generate a bit more revenue that you could have done otherwise. Yes. But it's hard to measure. Um, and the language to adopt is one of business and not one of purpose. Yeah. Uh, as counterintuitive as it sounds. Yeah. You, you cite in your, in your book, Guiding Purpose Strategy, um, Patagonia is a business that's a great example of exactly that, making profit from purpose. Um, Patagonia is cited a lot in the business discourse. I've, I've used it a couple of times mm-hmm. in the new P&L as well. And I wonder why Patagonia is continually held up. Is it because there's an absence of other great global brands who have demonstrated profit through purpose to that level or are we all being a bit are we all being a bit obvious or uh is there a real absence of of great global brands that are that are generating true purpose through profit Mm, no i don't think so i i I do think that well there should be more that that really genuinely embed purpose and also say we own, we don't just generate profit, but we also do good. I think there's two two things that are um, different here. One is that Patagonia and generally companies that are in a position to do this have relatively high margins and relatively high products mm-hmm. and actually financially can allow themselves to do the right thing. This is very different if you are, I don't know, and uh, you know, not to put the finger on anyone, but if you're a, a high street retailer in fashion that produces in the Far East at low margins and huge volumes, it's much harder to yes. genuinely do this. So we see it more in luxury brands and more niche brands, more in specialist brands, because they have the maneuverability and the margin to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a financial component to it. Tom's shoes and what have you. I mean, those aren't, nothing of this is cheap. The good thing is that they give part of the margin back and they communicate on it. And that's my second point. There are companies that do good work, uh, but they don't communicate as boldly or as strongly on it. There's, there's, there's probably a ton of good companies and in the asset management industry where, where we do this index, we can really shine, shed a light on it. Some of them are really boutique. And the in the flip side, it requires investors to say, I'm okay to pay a slightly higher margin to work with someone who doesn't just preach ESG or responsible investment. It's really important to me. And therefore I'm willing to pay a small increment on a manager's fee to manage my money. Um, versus someone else because I am convinced they are doing the right thing. So ultimately, uh, it still comes back to money uh, in, a, in, yes. a, in, a lot of, in a in a lot of ways, in a lot of senses. And I think we're a long way to your point. We're a long way away from it, where the majority of uh, large yeah. corporations you know, genuinely adopt it. As we slowly crawl out of the pandemic over the next eighteen months, I think many businesses are going to if not be in distress financially, certainly margins cut and, and, and opportunity and commercials cut. How do you convince a business having a conversation today or next month or next week to continue with their on their journey towards purpose? Um, you've touched on Patagonia there, maybe being in a slightly enviable position of a higher margin, which allows mm. them to do certain things. But how do you convince those businesses to keep going with their journey towards purpose when things are tougher and tighter commercially than perhaps they ever been have, have been for many of these businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I um, I don't try to convince them. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, it's like if I have to sell the concept of purpose yes. to a company, I don't think it's a good starting point to genuinely yeah. think about it. So um, what, what does happen, though, is sort of, you know, the the drop in the belief of faith that this actually will work, that, uh, but it's already on a journey. And um, that, that does sometimes come up of saying, well, is this really, like in any project, you have ups and downs and you think, well, is it really going to work? Are we on the right path here? And uh, I think that all I can do is draw the evidence uh, to it, uh, the good work that we're doing to, to help bring them forward. And at every start of a purpose transformation is generally insights. And these insights generally result in a universe we define, generally includes employees, includes customers, lost customers, prospects. And that voice is very powerful. It drives uh, the purpose transformation so to speak and so even in a pandemic that voice hasn't changed if anything it's probably become more important and so helping people to point back to the insights and the rationale that originally drove the the not the vision but the the, the willingness and the appetite the motivation and the ambition to go on such a project is still there yeah and so it helps to just you know pull those stats out, pull those yeah. insights out, pull those quotes out, pull those pain points out and say, well, you know, if you want to emerge stronger, you, you should really work on this. And yeah. it's a strength. If you build on a strength, generally, it's a, it's a good thing. So yeah. it's a narrative, a continued argumentation. I mean, it doesn't quite happen, uh, happen a lot, fortunately. Yes. <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier that um, you, know, you come from a marketing communications background, a PR background. Um, Trust is and belief in is essential to purpose and delivery of that purpose. So I wanted to get your sort of your view on the following. You know, in the in the in the digital age, we live in a almost a paradoxical world where there is more transparency asked of brands, but at the mm-hmm. same time, brands are able to collect more information on consumers than ever before, mm-hmm. often without their explicit or genuinely tacit agreement, which is I guess what the GDPR in Europe is trying to, mm-hmm. to minimize. Um, how do businesses balance this paradox in, in, a, in a more principled manner? Well, how do you balance it? I think it's a question that you, you alluded to or an answer uh, you alluded to is transparency. The other one I would say is value. Um, firstly, you know, how do you balance it? Make it really clear and really transparent. Don't just collect the information to bombard people. That's generally a recipe for disaster and increasingly so. And GDPR is one way of starting to, to put a bit of a flagpole up to say, hey, that, that's not okay. The other one is providing value in return. So if you just mm-hmm. collect information as a business in order to fill your you know, lead funnel and CRM systems and you know, hammer out emails, um, probably five a day, then there's no value in exchange. But if you provide true value in return for the data you provide, I don't actually think people have an issue per se to share data. I think we see this with Google particularly, with Facebook a bit less probably, but if you look at what value they provide for social interaction, and of course, you know, substitute for now in COVID even more um, of what we previously had in real life, then that's actually valuable a lot. And people are willing, unknowingly mostly, I would, 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 would argue, to give a lot of their information um, and their private information up 
but they get value in return. Tesla is another one. I mean, it's, it's great. I love it. And I'm happy to uh, provide that information. And I'm happy to have the dash cams filmingly continuously because I know that if anything happens, it's probably good for me and good for everybody that there's transparency and value of information uh, yeah. for the, whoever comes uh, and helps uh, at the scene. It's, it's everywhere where we can provide value in exchange and make it also tacit or clear that there is value in exchange, then that balance should hold up. Um, I think easily I see it with my kids. They're not worried about sharing information because they yeah. get a lot of, they get a lot of out there. Uh, I'm not sure about TikTok, to be honest. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, I think uh, they, they, they don't question um, as much because they enjoy generally uh, what they do. And if you give me something good in return, I'm happy to share my information. But if it's collected to the detriment uh, in any way, shape or form, then I'd be as quickly to say, please unsubscribe, please yes. stop, please take me off your database, etc. Yeah. Innovation is key to purpose as well in terms of focusing the, the commercial ambition of a business um, as part of that purposeful approach. There are a growing number of voices in the business community who suggest that, I guess, while the focus of innovation and the PRing of innovation is stronger than ever before, and we look at all of the big tech companies and the startups, that actually when you look across the broad board at tech innovation and the commercials, the numbers behind it, there's a strong argument that truly revolutionary innovation is slowing and fewer and fewer startups are achieving highly profitable innovation. The valuations might be billions, but mm -hmm. the profitability is, is not necessarily so. Um, you know, we hold up the great tech companies as, as examples of this, but mm -hmm. I was reading something last week that even when you look at the, the taxi share ride sharing apps, many are suggesting really they're just more efficient taxi services, mm -hmm. not necessarily technology revolution. So are we confusing revolution with evolution in the tech space or the innovation space? And could purpose reignite the innovation fire in that regard? Mm -hmm. So on the, on the first um, question here, are we confusing revolution with um, sort of an innovation? Um, I, th I think we are, largely, especially in the tech space. I think, I think we have to really distinguish invention from innovation. Yes. And uh, what we see is you know, innovation to some degree, but it's a reconfiguration of value. So you know, reconfiguration of value means that you take an existing piece of puzzle and you just put it together quickly, yeah. faster, yeah. more efficiently, and so forth. And we see this particularly in value chains. So disruption of value change is a big topic. Distribution is a big topic. That's where, in my opinion, a lot of, uh, a lot of the disruption happens, but also a lot of the innovation happens of reconfiguring value chains. You mentioned uh, sharing apps and platform apps. That's what they're doing. They're just jumping in between and they're reconfiguring an existing uh, value chain, so to speak from Amazon's to Uber's to what have you. So I agree. I mean, that's, that's, that's not inventing the wheel, right? When mm -hmm. previously we had wheels that were squares. So before that, we didn't even have wheels 7,000 years ago. And now, you know, our cars and our bicycles, et cetera, it's really yes. really a nice way to move around because someone invented the wheel. But Steve Jobs and Apple didn't, you know, there wasn't, in my opinion, was an innovation to bring an iPod. It's a reconfiguration of value. MP3 chips were available. Everything was there, but he reconfigured the value in such a way that we perceive it as beautiful, super cool, walk around with 5,000 know, sounds or music playlists in our pockets and so forth. But reconfiguration of value. Now, does purpose help to, um, you know, 
kind of stimulate uh, the process of innovation? I absolutely think it does. Yes. Does it help to recreate something entirely new, like a complete new invention? I think that's a stretch and we have to be honest enough to say that alone won't cut it. But if you stick with Apple, for instance, and their you know, purpose of humanized technology, not think different, their strapline or used to be a strapline, think different to set yourself apart from PCs and Windows and what have you. And, you know, from people in ties and suits and look how creative I am. Yeah. So if you, if you take that and say, well, humanized technology as an overarching reason why I exist to make technology safe, easy, beautiful to use for us as human beings, that goes really far. That really, that really forces you to think, well, in what other ways could I reconfigure mm -hmm. uh, a value chain or pieces of technology in their case to simplify my life? So it's yeah. really nice for me to use. So in that sense, I think a, a good purpose and a clarity of purpose really does help to think about reconfiguration of value. But it's not necessarily a driver for true, truly bringing new things to the world. I'd be really careful to hold up uh, an argument to say yeah. purpose is going to be your top lever to invent the next great, <laughs> uh, you know, the equivalent of the wheel in, uh, in, in, what, in whatever industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you touched on a couple of points there that that lead me quite succinctly into the next question. I I really enjoyed your book. Um, Thank you. Brilliant book. Thank you. A, a very enjoyable read. Um, I I love the quote in one of the you had a, quotes in each of the that led into each of the chapters. One by John Naisbitt, um I particularly enjoyed. The the most exciting breakthroughs of the twenty first century will occur not because of technology, but because of an expanded concept of what it means to be human, mm -hmm. which I think is a, is a brilliant quote. However, and I guess somewhat paradoxically, again, we, we're, we're heading full steam into the fourth industrial revolution with mm -hmm. technologies like AI and automation. And they have um, they're wonderful concepts and wonderful technologies, but they also have the potential to I guess, narrow the concept of what it means to be human by reducing opportunity and employment in many sectors and the impact that that will have invariably on society and the way we shape its future. So what role could purpose play in ensuring that the technology breakthroughs of the 21st century that John Naisbitt alludes to work for um, rather than against the positive expanding of what it means to be human? Mm-hmm. Oh wow, that's a really big, uh, a really big, uh, <laughs> a really important uh, question, Paul. But I think, firstly, and I have to be brutally honest here, I think there is no way around artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. the continued automation and the fourth industrial revolution. Secondly, I think it's painful and it's going to be very painful for a lot of people. Let's just, you know, completely rationally look at it. It's a continuation of the industrial revolution and it will drive more efficiency and machines and algorithms will substitute ever more of what human beings do. And as a consequence, I do believe uh, um, you know, we can be as naive as we want, but I do think that will result in a loss of opportunities, in a loss of um, economic opportunities for a large number of people. Uh, painful. I can only, uh, you know, I'm genuine and general optimist, but I think this is going to be painful for a lot of people, yes. to, frank it, uh, to, to state it quite frankly. But on the other hand, I also see, I mean, of course, where there is change, there's also opportunity. So there will mm -hmm. be opportunities to do the right thing. And if I think about 
firstly, the risks associated with this, not just economical risk, but also political risks and what artificial intelligence can do. Uh, there, I think purpose in its larger sense has a tremendous role to play in as it helps us shape uh, the future, so to speak, and how we um, deal and how we perhaps channel um, this fourth industrial revolution more broadly, um, so to speak. So for example, right, should we think about um, embedding a purpose within a company that develops artificial intelligence for, um, let's say, whatever gadgets or devices, and perhaps at one point someone will create killer drones that have facial recognition and a you know, hu huge issue. And I think in that sense, artificial intelligence is very dangerous if you combine this. But if we use purpose as an overarching force to do the right thing more generally on government level, on, on government um, uh, perhaps uh, regulatory bodies, and we see this, for instance, in finance, in the UK code of stewardship already mm. creeping in to say, hey, you know, industry, dear industry or dear corporates, uh, you have to comply with certain standards and purpose is part of what you need to articulate. And by the way, your purpose needs to address a greater societal good. We yeah. want to see genuine adoption of you as an industry doing something genuinely good. If yeah. we can use purpose as a concept at that level, I do think it's a, it's, it's a very good lever to counterbalance it, yes. at least to some, to some degree. Yeah. You've talked about, and we've talked a number of times about the importance of the business case for purpose. Um, when you work with a business to move towards a more purposeful approach, if you like, and you're some way down that journey, how do you measure how deeply purpose has been embedded into the organization, into the culture? Well, what are the, the milestones or the metrics or the measurements that demonstrate that the purpose has been bought into by the organization and by the employees within it? Mm -hmm. It's a frequency and consistency in terms of measurement. And it's also asking the right question to continuously measure it. Like with any market research, I think it's about what question you ask and repeatedly asking it. Um, because purpose is um, a spiritual energy, so to speak, that radiates from within, it's not as straightforward to measure. I think we can measure it by um, value systems or by reviewing value systems and by measuring the cohesion towards such value systems over time. And what I, you know, I love the, the, the NPS score, the net promoter score, because it's mm -hmm. such a simple, powerful metric and it doesn't do everything, but it does one thing really, really well. It measures uh, how likely you are to recommend the company to a friend, let's mm -hmm. say, or a brand or a product to a friend. And you only do this if you genuinely feel, you know, because I put my relationship at stake here, I genuinely recommend this or not, you only do this if you feel good about something. And I yeah. think this lines itself very nicely to measure values and to measure purpose. I call it shared and aligned purpose. So firstly, on the notion of shared purpose, I can measure within by asking, you know, how genuinely, let's say, for example, in terms of employer brand or employer value proposition, how likely would you recommend to work at company X? And that's a really broad, open question. Yeah. But if the answer is 10 or 9, genuinely, there's probably something really good going on. There's something happy going on, very likely, yes. overall in the overall population. And you can take the same question and asking to suppliers, partners, customers, people that are kind of outside. And if you can build cohesion between these two values, what you measure within and outside, I think it's a first step at measuring how strong a value system revolves that's yes. one. And the other one is, of course, you know, very clearly asking on 
on values and what they mean. And there's great companies, great place to work is one of them that we work sometimes with to help once we've embedded the purpose into an organization to tie that back to employee surveys so that it can be continuously measured of what yes. we do actually demonstrates value over time and people feel connected to it or not. Just before we go, Marcus, at the end of each podcast, you, you might be aware we have a new PNL to the point where we ask all of our guests just to give one or two key takeaways that listeners can take away today and use in their business. What would those one or two key takeaways be from you in terms of purpose and business? Purpose and business. Uh, the first one is, um, what's well, a question? Can you tell me why you do what you do? And can you tell me that in five words or less? Yes. If you can answer this with a clear yes, I don't have much to advise because I think you're in a really good spot. If you can ask the same question to your employees and to your staff and they answer the same thing, we know why we do what we do. And yeah, we kind of, kind of, you know, it's not a, a long phrase I have to put forward here, but a few words you have shared purpose. If you have that again, no big piece of advice. If yeah. you ask your customers and your partners, same question and they answer in a similar form great place to be. So my advice is if you say no to all of this, start with asking who you are by really thinking hard about your purpose. Advice number one, I would spend 80% on this. And then I would probably advise you to spend, because you'll come up with more than five words, I'm sure. But I will advise you to spend the other 20% of honing that to something that's really short, really memorable, really concise, really empowering in five words or less. If you can do those two things, you're already in a good place. Marcus, it's a great way to uh, finish the conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about what Marcus does with Brand Affairs or invest in a copy of his fantastic business book, The Guiding Purpose Strategy, please go to marcuskramer.net. You'll find his web address in the notes that accompany this podcast. And as I mentioned in the introduction, please do take a moment to review us. We genuinely appreciate it, and it does make a difference. And if you'd like to subscribe, please go to principlesandleadership.com. Also, if you'd like to propose a topic or a guest for the new P&L, please just go to principlesandleadership.com and fill out the contact form. Finally, I'm Paul, host of the new P&L. Thank you once again for listening, and have a great day.